All right. Well, uh, make sure you have your handout. And uh, most everything, uh, I'm not going to have anything on the screen, so everything, scriptures and all, are in the handout, so uh, that'll work best. That way uh, I don't have to worry about anything not working right by having it in the handout. So uh, I've just pulled some things from uh, our time in the fall. Uh, we studied uh, various aspects of the Holy Spirit, uh, kind of gave a foundation of the Spirit. So tonight I've just pulled a few little things to serve as reminders of, of some things we've covered but also for those who have not been with us, and I just thought it'd be a good introduction, and I didn't want to start something new and then have uh, next week where we're watching the Jim Sembla teaching <clears throat> and then have a week in between. So uh, tonight will just be a bit of a review, uh, not everything, but just a few highlights. We talk about the Holy Spirit in theology and kind of more technical way. This is the study of pneumatology. Pneuma is a from the Greek word that means breath, or actually it's the, in the uh, Hebrew, uh, taken from the Hebrew. The Hebrew is the word ruach. The Greek equivalent is pneuma, but pneumatology speaks of spirit, breath. And so we study the Holy Spirit. We talk about pneumatology. If you're studying end times, you study what? What is that called? Eschatology. All right? Those are more of the technical names. Uh, if you're studying the doctrine of Christ, you're studying... Christology, if you're studying the doctrine of sin, harmodiology, uh, salvation, soteriology. So again, don't worry about those, but pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit and the person and work of the Spirit is what we're, what we're doing. And so uh, in the fall last year, last year, uh, a month ago, two months ago, uh, we were trying to lay more of a general foundation concerning the person and work of the Holy Spirit, whereas this second part we'll get into, uh, we're going to spend a little bit more time getting into things like uh, the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, and there's a lot of things to unpack when you start talking about the gifts of the Spirit, and we'll uh, talk about that in just a little bit. But pneumatology, that's what we're studying, is the person and work of the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit works today. Uh, in creation and the earth, the church and our lives, and that's our that's our focus. Uh, one definition that is in your outline from uh, Wayne Grudem, who is a, some of you may be familiar with that name, but he's a, a theologian. But just a simple uh, definition is the work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church. So when we talk about the work of the Spirit, we're talking about the active presence of God uh, on the earth, in the church, uh, the role of the Spirit. Now, the Spirit is the part of the person of the Trinity. Uh, we spent time talking about the person of the Spirit, how the Holy Spirit is God, how the Holy Spirit, we talk about the personality of the Holy Spirit. Man, I remember, um, is it in Acts chapter 4? Uh, five, where Ananias and Sapphira, remember, they claimed to have given a gift uh, to the church, but they didn't really, they lied, and Peter told them that they've uh, lied to the Holy Spirit. Well, you can't lie to a force. You can't lie to an it. So again, just an example of the, per when we talk about the personality of the Spirit, 
that the Holy Spirit is not, again, is not a force, is not just some mist, uh, you know, or something hovering around uh, the earth, uh, kind of an ethereal type of uh, vapor or something, but the person of the Holy Spirit is very much a part of the triune Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And uh, so again, we talked about that. And by the way, all the Wednesday nights uh, are online, so you can go back and listen to some of those things that we covered uh, much more in depth uh, on the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, One quote that I have there that I always like, Andrew Murray. Anybody familiar with Andrew Murray, the author Andrew Murray, uh, written just hundreds of books that are uh, and uh, from commentaries to more devotional writings. So if you are looking for someone, uh, an older writer that just has a richness, uh, written a lot of things on prayer, the work of the Spirit, the work of Christ in our life, uh, you, you will do well to read Andrew Murray. Uh, and he has a quote there under the work of the Spirit that I, that I have, and he says, all that, all that in the Old Covenant, we would, might would say the Old Testament, had been promised by God, all that had been manifested and brought nigh to us of divine grace in Jesus, all those promises of the Old Covenant, all those things that have been manifested and brought close to us by the grace of Jesus, he says, the Holy Spirit is now to make our very own. The Holy Spirit's been given uh, to us, sent to us by Christ to take all the promises and truths of God and make them uh, real, make them uh, connect us to those truths, uh, not just where they're abstract uh, theological renderings, but the Holy Spirit uh, makes, those, makes those promises and, uh, of, of Christ and the covenant uh, real into our lives. And then he says, through him, through, uh, through him, all the promises of God are fulfilled. All grace and salvation in Christ become a personal possession and experience. You know, we talk about the Holy Spirit. One of the things that when I'm looking at uh, uh, books or commentaries, a lot of people approach the Holy Spirit in a very kind of uh, theological concept. And certainly, you have to understand the theology of the Holy Spirit. That's what we talk about pneumatology. There is a theology of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit has been given to us to be experienced. Okay? It's not just a concept of, of, of theory, but the Holy Spirit is given to us, as we'll remind ourselves in just a moment, how the Holy Spirit has come to uh, be the presence of Jesus inside of us. But the Holy Spirit has been given to us for us to experience the work of God, to the work of God to be uh, applied and, and be made real. Uh, and so a lot of times when we, uh, maybe your background and other people, when they talk about the Holy Spirit, uh, that sometimes it's just, it's kind of a, a concept or it's kind of a doctrine, but there seems to be sometimes a disconnect between the reality of living and experiencing the Spirit in a, on a daily basis. You know, Paul talked about uh, walk in the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. And that, that's not intellectual theory. That's talking about a real experiential reality of a living, breathing, dynamic um, relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. So 
uh, it's, uh, so Murray just reminds us there that all of these truths, the Holy Spirit has been given to us and been sent to us to make these truths of God uh, a reality and for us to have them and experience them as believers. As part of our goals of study, uh, I mentioned this in the very first time we met, and I just kind of mentioned that, is that we want to, at least I do and hopefully you do, uh, I want to know, I'm not satisfied with any part of the person of God, I want to know more, I want to experience more, I want more of the Holy Spirit, I want to be yielding to the Spirit uh, more in my life. So we hopefully want to encourage ourselves as we walk through this, uh, uh, as we continue in this. Uh, another goal that I, I pray that we have is that our hearts and lives, that we become open to the Spirit, and that's being open to the very presence of God. Again, God's with us, not just when we gather here at church, but the presence of God is with us when we leave here, we go to work, uh, in our home, at night. Um, and so I want the reality of, of knowing God through the Holy Spirit and His presence and action uh, to, be, to grow in my life. And hopefully you as well. You want that. You're not satisfied with where you're at. You want to know God more. And to know God more is to obey Him more and to experience Him more. And God has given us the Spirit. And so also part of the Spirit that uh, we'll look at and remind ourselves of the Scripture in Acts 2. Jesus told those disciples to go to Jerusalem and wait because the Holy Spirit... Uh, they would be given power by the Holy Spirit. And now I would think after three and a half years, the disciples, the, the 12 or the 11 really, uh, were fairly, you could say, you would think they would be fairly well equipped by spending three and a half years uh, with Jesus. I mean, they saw miracles. They witnessed uh, feeding of multitudes. They witnessed healings. They heard the teachings. They were there firsthand and all the ministries of Jesus, and you would think that they would be very well equipped to continue the work of Jesus. But Jesus knew something that they didn't quite grasp. I'm not even sure they grasped it totally until years later. But, but he said, you need to go and wait for the Holy Spirit, because when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, very much Old Testament language, remember Acts written by Mr. Luke? Remember we talked about how it's important to distinguish the way Luke approaches teaching about the Holy Spirit versus the way that Paul emphasizes the Holy Spirit. Not that we're pitting them against each other, but Luke kind of has an emphasis uh, of speaks of the power and the witness of the Spirit uh, that's a little different than Paul. Paul tends to put the baptism and the role of the Holy Spirit as that initiation or the baptism when we are saved. But Luke, uh, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and wrote the book of Acts, puts an emphasis of the Holy Spirit very similar to the way the Old Testament presents the Spirit, which is of an empowerment of the Spirit of God coming upon a person. Again, it's kind of like some people want to talk about James and Paul, about uh, the, does James emphasize works and Paul's a man of grace? No, there are two pedals on the same bicycle. You got to push one to get the other one going. They both work in tandem. And so, uh, but it's important to recognize that the presence of the Holy Spirit has been given to us uh, to empower us, really, that the Spirit of God enables us to do the work of Jesus, the, the fulfillment of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, 
that we cannot do by ourselves. Sometimes we don't realize that because we're pretty good at trying to serve God in our own strength, right? In our own, our own flesh. That's what Galatians, Paul said, why are, you trying to, why are you trying to do the works of God in the flesh? You didn't come into grace with the flesh and now you're trying to serve him under the law. You're trying to fulfill the works of God in the flesh. And that's the whole point where he talks about walking in the spirit. We'll look at that and remind ourselves a little bit that, about that in just a minute. But the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit is something the Lord has given us to fulfill. And I'm glad that, uh, that the Holy Spirit has empowered and does empower believers. Because how could we, how could we really walk with God without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit uh, in our life? And uh, we try, but it's not very successful. It's better to do it God's way. Uh, so some of the things that we're going to cover in this next section, this is not in your, your handout, but uh, these are just some things I wrote down that I want to make sure that we uh, cover in the next several months as we continue this study of the Holy Spirit. Uh, one is, why is there so much controversy in churches regarding the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Boy, you want to you you stir up controversy, just start digging into churches and the different views of the Holy Spirit. Now again, we all, nobody's, at least among Bible-believing churches, they're not disputing who the Holy Spirit is, but as far as when you start talking about the role of the gifts of the Spirit and the manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit, those are things that, that um, are, uh, there's some differences, and we want to try to dig in and find out what Scripture is clear about and maybe what is not so clear. Uh, and that kind of connects to, are the are all the gifts of the Holy Spirit available for believers today? There's two schools historically in evangelical uh, churches where you have one that says, no, all of those sign gifts, uh, uh, tongues, prophecy, healings, etc., etc., uh, those are things that were signs for the apostles. So when John, who was the last apostle to die, those ended because their purpose was to authenticate the authority of the apostles. So once the apostles were off the scene and died, there was no need for those quote-unquote sign gifts. That's one school of thought. And then there's certainly another school of thought that says, well, no, there's really no evidence that those sign gifts uh, died or ended. And so how do we balance those? For example, how do we balance the role, if there still is a role of prophecy, how do we balance that out with the authority of Scripture? Is it the same? Is it less? Is it different? Uh, what about tongues? Uh, is that an available gift? Or is that something that was unique at a particular time period and its significance and purpose really doesn't exist today? Certainly, again, there's differences among uh, believers that we're all going to be in heaven with who just have those differences, kind of like eschatology or end times, you know? Is there a rapture before the tribulation? Is it in the middle of the tribulation? Is it right before the wrath of God is poured out? Is it after the tribulation? Uh, or, as some would say, well, there's not going to be any rapture because all those things have been already fulfilled and now Jesus is ruling and reigning and we're just waiting for his second coming to rule and to reign. There's a lot of different views on end times about among well-meaning saved Christians, all right? 
So again, this is not, these are not areas to divide, but you remember what Paul, uh, remember in Acts chapter 17, we always think of Acts chapter 17 because that's when Paul was in Athens. Remember when he was there at, at old King James's Mars Hill, uh, the Areopagus, uh, and where they gathered to hear philosophies or whatever of the day. But Acts chapter 17 begins with Paul in Berea. We talk about those Bereans, and he commended the Bereans in Acts 17 in the beginning. Uh, he commended those Bereans because what, what did those Bereans do? Do you remember that Paul commended them uh, for? Okay, I think I heard Connie and I heard a little mumbling. But <coughs> <coughs> he commended them. Still got that cough. Anybody got that cough? Just seems to nag. Hold on. <coughs> Excuse me. He no, I'll choke <laughs> talking with a cough drop. Um, he commended the Bereans, the Christians in Berea, because they searched the scriptures to verify what the Apostle Paul was teaching them. He said that was a good thing that they didn't just take it at face value. They heard him. They were like, you know, let's go, let's go look at that. And of course, what were they looking? They were looking at the Old Testament because that's all they, they had. But they were looking at the scriptures to verify. So that he commended them for that. That was a good thing, all right? And so, um, so anyway, we talk about the Holy Spirit. We want to find out, um, you know, where are those things, how does prophecy, how does it weigh out with scripture today? Uh, what about prophets? Are there Prophets today, there's people who, you know, uh, identify that they believe that they have the prophetic gift or they have what we might call the office of a prophet. It doesn't mean they have a little sign on their door that says prophet, you know, check with secretary, you know, it doesn't mean a literal. It just means that they're operating uh, in, a, in a particular role like, you know, uh, the, the scripture says in Ephesians about the five what is sometimes referred to as the fivefold ministry of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Some people put pastors and teachers as one office, but, um, but the point is, are those offices, are those roles um, still today? Are there still people functioning in an apostolic role? Are there people still functioning in a prophetic role, okay? Um, or... Those things kind of end and die off. So we want to kind of uh, dig into that and look at that. Um, does God allow some people to experience more supernatural manifestations of the Spirit than other believers? Uh, is there, at times, you will hear, at least I do, maybe you don't read or hear about these things, but I'll read various accounts of uh, revival and uh, uh, some tremendous uh, testimonies of ministry that is going on in um, places like South America, Africa, uh, places in which uh, there doesn't seem to be the abundance of books and technology and media like we have in the West. And we hear just, uh, you know, uh, how many of you remember or know of the name Reinhard Bonnke? How many of you know who that name is? He's 
with the Lord. And I have a picture of one of Reinhard Bonnke's crusades. And there, it's impossible to, uh, I mean, he preached all over the world. And, and some of these individuals like Reinhard Bonnke were really, um, let's say popular, I don't mean popular in the fleshly sense, but were more, were more well known overseas than they were in America. But I have pictures of Reinhard Bonnke speaking to crusades. And I mean, it, tens of thousands of people that, that are there. And you know, you just say, oh, that, that can't be valid. I don't know. I'm not ready to jump off that cliff with you on that. You know, I'm, I, I want to approach it a little more humble and, uh, and discern, you know, God, what are you doing? And is it possible that because of the needs and because of the situations, you know, in some of these nations, um, you know, where, uh, let's say, for example, like a nation like Haiti or uh, certain parts of South America, some of you uh, would know about this from your time there, where there seems to be an intensity of, of, of demonism and spiritism and those things, uh, and at times seem to have a manifestation of the demonic, would it not make sense that for God to manifest the real power of the supernatural in those settings? Whereas in America, we are very, we're, we're products of our European, uh, uh, some of us, not all of our products of European, but our European heritage and our rational view of things uh, where we don't really, uh, we've kind of separated the idea of the supernatural from uh, the, the logical, rationale way that we, we function, uh, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. And so could it be that in different places around the world, God may manifest works of the Spirit more in certain areas because of the unique need versus other areas? I don't know. I don't know. It's a, uh, something to, to think about. Again, we're probably not going to write, write the final answer on that. We'll uh, not be that... Uh, ambitious, but what is the relationship of the Holy Spirit and miracles today? Do we believe that God can heal today? Uh, do, how does he heal? Can we expect healing? Is something is healing really just something that, well, we kind of say God heal, but we really don't, you know, we, you know we, we don't really expect it or believe it, or is that something? Uh, what about the gift of healing? People that Paul mentioned about the spiritual gift, gifts of healing. Are there individuals that have gifts, the specific gift of, of healing, meaning that it doesn't mean they, nobody has the power to heal except God, but they have been given a, uh, a unique uh, unction and role of faith and belief to pray for the sick that's different maybe than somebody else. Uh, you know, and that certainly is something... That some people believe. We want to find out, well, what, what is Scripture? To, does Scripture clear on that? Does Scripture tell us that? Uh, the Pentecostal charismatic movements, how have they uh, contributed in a positive way? What might be some ways that there's been some negative things of the Pentecostal charismatic movement? How do we, as individuals in a church, how do we uh, maintain balance in our understanding and in our role of the Holy Spirit? And the gift of the and the Holy Spirit gifts and those type of things. Certainly, if you were to evaluate, and, and there's some people that if you were to ask them, uh, 
you know, about somebody that might be known for ministry of the Holy Spirit and the entirety of what they know might be what they've seen on quote-unquote Christian television, they may or may not have an accurate view of what Scripture teaches. They might. I'm not ready to say everybody that's on Christian TV is bad, but I'm just saying there certainly are people that have perhaps not been the best representation of what I would call a spirit-filled ministry, maybe because there was an overemphasis upon certain things, money, prosperity, or um, an emphasis upon if you uh, contribute and send in your seed gift, I'll send you a healing cloth and your healing is guaranteed. Um, again, I'm not sure that's the best representation, but do we want to say, well, hey, look at what happened, so let's just throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? We kind of do that, don't we? We take a few, a few ex- examples of people that are maybe not representing what I would consider a biblical balance of, of these things, and we just kind of don't want anything to do with it, all right? We're not going to be part, we don't want to be anybody to identify us with being part of that, that group. And so, uh, again, we're not going to solve all these things, but it'll be kind of fun to dig into some of these things. But our goal is to say, what does the Bible teach? What is the Bible clear about? And guess what? I've reached the place in my uh, age of life that I'm very comfortable in saying, I don't know. I don't know. I see this. I see this. I don't know. That's okay. Because guess what? I don't have to. It's not a requirement for me to know everything for, to be saved. It's okay to say, you know, I see this. I see that. I don't know. I see both, I see both angles. And uh, we may just reach that place where there's certain things that we see very clearly. And there's others that we just say, I don't know. The Bible isn't real clear on whether this is the way that something always has to take place or the Holy Spirit always has to exercise and be manifested in this way all the time. Remember when we went through Acts and saw the various ways the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was made in about four or five different places? We tend to focus in on just the day of Pentecost, right? But then how did he work among the Samaritans? How did the Holy Spirit, was it poured out at Cornelius' house? In other words, all those differences in the way it was poured out don't all match. Guess what? God can do and operate however he wants, whenever he wants, with whoever he wants. And he doesn't always necessarily do it the same way at the same time. If we went around and talked about how individuals in this room came to faith in Christ, we would have almost as many testimonies in different paths than there are people in this room. And some might would say, oh, God can never do that. Be careful when you start saying God can never do such and such. Now, I recognize we want to make sure that we, you know, are scriptural, but sometimes we want to make sure that we don't presume that we know more about God than God, right? Jesus, as a reminder, going back to our handout, it's important to remind ourselves that the Holy Spirit, Jesus promised the sending of the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16, these are in your outline there. Jesus said, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper 
comforter. The Greek word there is parakletos, paraclete, not parakeet, paraclete. He's not going to give you a parakeet, uh, but he will give you another helper. The Greek word is paraclete, uh, that he, the Holy Spirit, may abide with you forever. Again, I'm reading these right out of your, out of your outline there. Uh, Jesus said, I will pray to the Father and he will give you another helper. And then he says in John 16, 7, a few chapters over, something that to me is always striking when Jesus said this. He said, nevertheless, I tell you, it is to your advantage that I go away. Remember, he was talking to them about his uh, death, about his uh, impending um, uh, uh, crucifixion or his death. And he said, it is to your, he's talking to his disciples. He said, it is to your advantage that I go away. I don't, I don't believe they thought that was to their advantage. You know, we kind of read it back and like, oh, that's so spiritual. I don't think they were thinking, we don't agree, Jesus. We don't think you should go anywhere. I don't think they thought that was an advantage, right? He said, it's to your advantage that I go away. Notice. He says, for if I do not go away, the Helper, or the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now, it's interesting here on those two verses. Do you notice in 14, 16, Jesus says, I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another comforter. And then in 16, 7, what does it say? If I depart, Jesus says, I will send you the Holy Spirit. Well, don't, don't go out and start a denomination over that. Because we're talking about the, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, three in one. There's only one God manifested in three persons of personalities. Um, and again, won't take time to get into that of the Trinity. But don't, don't over-separate uh, the nature of God in, uh, in the work of God there. But I just thought that's interesting. Thought I'd point that out. So Jesus promised and said it's to your advantage that the Holy Spirit comes. Now, why would you, from what maybe you, we talked about, or certainly from your own personal knowledge of the Scriptures, why would Jesus say it is an advantage to have the Holy Spirit versus me? And of course, we know the Bible says the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus, right? So, but why would it be an advantage? Huh? So when Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that was, that was how that is going to work. Uh, what else? Empowerment. Empowerment, right, right. What else? Yeah, he will guide you in all truth. The umpire, right. Arnie? Yeah. Yeah, billions of the present. Yeah, right. Dan? Sure. Yeah. Yes. Again, sorry, I'm interrupting you. Yes. 
In Acts, so we see the fulfillment there. Jesus said in Acts 1, again, this is, this is in your outline. And being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized or immersed with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. All right, so there they are in Jerusalem. Jesus ascended. Remember when Jesus ascended before them, they saw uh, two angels and said, Men, why are you looking and gazing up in the sky? Do you not know that this same Jesus that you saw go up, this same Jesus, not somebody born in North Korea, not somebody born in a tribe in Guatemala, no, this same Jesus, there will be antichrist, there will be false Christs, all right, like a lot of people claiming to be Christ. No, this same Jesus that went up, that same Jesus that bodily was resurrected, that went up, that same Jesus will one day return. But remember, the disciples in that period of time when Jesus was on the earth before he ascended into heaven, they had a burning question in Acts chapter 1. They said, Jesus, now, certainly now has got to be the time that you're going to reestablish the nation of Israel and bring it back to its glory. Now, I personally believe that that will be fulfilled. But Jesus didn't say that's not going to happen. He didn't even rebuke them for their understanding of a restored Israel that Jesus will return and literally rule and reign. He did not rebuke them for that. He just said it is not for you to know the what? The time or the hour. In other words, there's, there's a lot to do, guys, before that happens. He didn't rebuke them for their understanding. They had a correct understanding because they understood that those Old Testament promises would be fulfilled, literally. Not spiritually in the church that would replace Israel. They understood it correctly and Jesus did not try to correct them because they were accurate. Where they were off was in thinking that at that moment in time that that was what was going to take place. Okay, And so in Acts chapter 2... We see the fulfillment of the promise of Joel 2.28 when they're there in Jerusalem, when the day of Pentecost, Pentecost 50 days after Passover, had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak it with other dialects. In the Greek, that word tongues is different than glossolalia that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians, that that word is they began to speak in various dialects, languages, because you know later uh, that the people there in the day of Pentecost were all amazed and saying, how do these people speaking a language and I understand what they're saying? Okay, It was again a, a miracle of languages. By the way, something we touched on last fall was that uh, there are patterns that you see in the Old Testament 
that God in his authority and establish his uh, in the kingdom of God uh, is the great divine reversal. You remember on remember when the people gathered there in Genesis uh, in Genesis is it six uh, on the Tower of Babel and they were seeking to make a name for themselves and build a Tower of Babel. What did God do as an act of judgment upon the people? What did he do? He did what? He confounded their what? Their languages. What did God hear in a, in a, in a similar sense, but a different sense, not as judgment, but as a manifestation of God's presence and a divine reversal as God manifested this new presence that he would have among, uh, in the earth and among his people. And one of the signs that he gave as they gathered was the, uh, was the miracle of languages. This time, it wasn't to bring confusion and judgment like it was done in Genesis 6. But this time, it was languages that would be a languages of unity to manifest the presence of God. All right? Um, verses 14 through 17. Again, I'm reading these off your handout. But Peter, standing up with the eleven raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea, because remember, what was the accusation among the crowds when they heard these 120 acting and carrying on the way they were doing? What was, what was their accusation? They're all a bunch of drunks. They've all been hitting that Sabbath wine or whatever it is. I don't know. Uh, it says, Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem... Let this be known to you, and heed my words, for these are not drunk. Verse 15. Again, this is in your outline. For they're not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Roughly, that would be 9 o'clock. Now, I've known some folks that sometimes when I've been flying, and I get an early flight... And I'm amazed when I go in maybe and have a, to get a bite to eat how somebody's ordering a cocktail at 9 o'clock in the morning. All right, that's free. Um, verse 16, he said, but this. Notice how Peter... Connected, and this is kind of an important principle to keep in mind, and we've said this many times. Notice how Peter connected the experience to Scripture. You with me? Notice how he said, This is that which the prophet Joel, Joel 2.28, spoke about. And he quotes Joel, And it shall come to pass in the last days. Now, if Peter was saying that they were in the last days. He's saying this is the fulfillment. Well, we're a little more down the road in the last days than they were there on the day of Pentecost, right? And he said, it shall come to pass in the last days, meaning one of the manifestations that Joel saw and prophesied by the Spirit of God was the work and the advancement of God's kingdom. And in the last days, he says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Now, see, what's interesting about that, because remember, we talked about this when we compared last uh, fall, <clears throat> we compared the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. What was different in the work of the Spirit in, under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, versus what we know under the New Covenant? What, what, was, the, what was one of the primary differences? Yeah, for ind various individuals to empower them for specific individuals, not everybody. It would empower them for specific tasks, uh, specific purposes that God would do. But the promise in Joel was different because there would come a day that God would make His Holy Spirit available, not just to select individuals for select acts of God's purposes or service, but in the last days, the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon all people, okay? It would be available for everyone, okay? And so Peter is saying this, this event, this event of the Holy Spirit coming and manifesting in languages, this is that, this is what is happening that was foretold through the prophet Joel. So one of the ways that I think that the enemy, Satan, well actually, uh, yeah, one of the ways that I think Satan, as I alluded to earlier, I think would fit into his strategy is that if the Holy Spirit, and I don't think that sometimes we're as convinced about the importance and, and priority of the Spirit in our churches, because we still kind of feel like, you know, if we, uh, you saw in the movie Field of Dreams, we kind of have that as a church philosophy. Build it and they will come, right? You know, we're very impressed with ourselves. So we have all these gimmicks and things that we do. But, um, but if I, you know, if well, part of Satan's strategy, if Satan, at least in, in one sense, understands, because he can you know, he can read the word or knows the word. He doesn't understand it because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. But that the Holy Spirit has been given to empower God's people and God's church is he can't, he can't take away that power necessarily because it's been poured out and the work of God is being manifested uh, presently and is going forth. But one of the things that he can do is keep God's people in such confusion and chaos as to the role in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that in essence, they're ineffective. So that's the reason I think there's so much confusion. Uh, you know, one of the reasons, so much confusion about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, because as long as we keep arguing, debating, and dividing ourselves among the work of the Holy Spirit, guess what? We're going to remain just a bunch of factions and ineffective in the purposes and mission of God uh, upon the earth today. Um, the Holy Spirit uh, has, again, been given to be an empowerment. For example, in Acts 4.13, it says that when, the, when Peter and John were brought before the religious leaders, they observed that Peter and John, they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Now, that's interesting 
Because Peter, boldness was not something that was attributed to him prior to Acts chapter 2. I'll say that again. Right? Because he denied Jesus three times. He was fearful about it being identified as a follower of Jesus. And now, in Acts 2, what's he doing? He's standing up before, in essence, the whole world, quote-unquote, and letting them know his identity. And now we see in Acts chapter, was it, 4, when they're before the religious leaders, they observed the boldness of Peter and John And it says, and they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were fishermen. They were uh, part of the local 481 Fishermen's Union there in Galilee. And they marveled because they were marveled not only by their articulation of, of the word, but they marveled. And in this marveling, there's something that it says, and they realize that they had been with Jesus. You see, if we want the world, if we want people to be impressed, I don't want them to be impressed with stuff we do. I pray that people get impressed by the presence of Jesus on Sunday morning. Don't be impressed with Grace Church. Don't be impressed with... We, hit, we got the temperature right this Sunday. Uh, we got the sound right this Sunday. All the media worked right. We, we painted the, the walls, all those things. Listen, all this stuff's going to burn up. This, stuff, this is just stuff. What people, lives are transformed and changed by the presence of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit manifesting himself among his people as worship and the word and all these things that of the work of God, that when he does those things, and that do people, when they see our lives, are they, are they, are they I don't want to say impressed in a, in, a, in a fleshly way, but do they sense that our character is that which reflects the character of Jesus? You know why, the, I mean, among other things, because it's just part of what they do, but I think there's also, when the media loves to highlight and advertise and just kind of make sure that it's blown with the loudest trumpet. Anytime, you know, there's some church that get involved, gets involved in some scandal or some ministers involved in some scandal. Because suddenly what they're saying is, maybe they're not conscious of it, but this is my thought, there's almost something very subtle in saying, we expect different from you all. You all say one thing, but you're doing the same stuff that we do. And there's like this, this uh, much more anger sometimes that comes out from the world than sometimes it happens in the church. Listen, if the church, what did the Bible says that judgment begins in the house of God? If we don't judge ourselves and get ourselves right before God, guess what? God will use outside sources to do Just like, did he not raise a Babylon and Assyria to exercise judgment upon his covenant people? You bet. Why? Because they refused to obey God. That was what Habakkuk was all about. One of the things that Habakkuk was about. And so the the spirit, we're we're always sometimes competing against our 
our own ability to do something. Paul, I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. In other words, my preaching and the response, it wasn't because I've crafted an oratorical finesse in my words. Listen, I've known a lot of people that I've listened to that, I'll give you one of the most extreme examples. Hitler was a great public speaker. I mean, this failure corporal from World War I, how in the, and yet, of course, I believe he was demon-possessed. Uh, there's actually accounts, because the German Nazis were very much into the occult and paganism, that there's accounts of people who would be around Hitler when he spoke, and they literally would uh, recognize his voice changing when he spoke. There's all sorts of histories of that. But he understood the oratorical skills to move people. There are people that know how to speak. And they can bring a tear. They can, you know, they, they can move you to emotion. You go, in the, you, know, you go in there and you're listening to them. Next thing you know, you're standing on the chair and you're ready to go out and burn something down or do something, right? Because they, they got you all riled up. There's just, there's just people that have those skills. And maybe not as dramatic as that, but there's just people that have the skill of public speaking and know how to do that. Paul says, look, that, isn't, that wasn't the source of what I did or my power. He says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but what does he say? But with a demonstration of what? Spirit's power. So that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. One of the things that, as we kind of conclude a little bit, one of the things that we'll look at First, in a couple of weeks, <clears throat> you know, that we, uh, when we talk about the uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit, there's, again, there's a lot there, and that's usually what really gins up our interest. And when we want to talk about those spiritual gifts and, you know, and tongues and prophecy and miracles and all those things. But I think there's something that we have oftentimes neglected to underscore before we talk about the gifts, and that's not the gifts of the Spirit, but it's the fruit of the Spirit. Because the fruit of the Spirit, and I have the scripture there in Galatians 5, you see the fruit of the Spirit, we talk about the evidence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. I'm going to tell you something, the evidence of the Holy Spirit is not speaking in tongues. Because I've known people that have spoken tongues that are wicked as snakes. I don't know what kind of tongues they were speaking in, but it wasn't a godly meaning. And if you don't have a background and understand that, then don't worry about that. I'm just saying there has been such emphasis upon that as the evidence. The evidence. Let me tell you what the evidence of the Spirit is. And it's right here in Galatians 5, 22. The fruit of the Spirit. Because you see, the gifts of the Spirit, you don't have to function 
with the gift of the Holy Spirit. You're not required to use a gift of the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that? Now, you may be, have given that, and you just may not choose to exercise your gift of serving or teaching, but you're not required to use a gift, a gift of the Holy Spirit that God has given. But the fruit of the Spirit is not an option. Some of you are looking at me like I've got fire on my head. Do you hear what I'm saying? You're not required. You will still go to heaven if you do not exercise a spiritual gift that God has given you. But if you do not manifest the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of the work of regeneration that only comes, how is fruit manifested? It is what? It's grown, right? You can't look at the language here in Galatians 5. We'll wrap up with this. Paul begins, I tell you, Galatians is a Holy Spirit-saturated book. Because what is he combating? He's combating people. Remember where he begins in Galatians 1, where he says, I'm shocked that you're abandoning the true gospel, the gospel of grace, that you're going back to the works of the law. You see, there's no life in the law. The life of the Spirit is in the new covenant, is in the grace of Christ. That's how he begins. And then in chapter 5, in your outline, he says, but if, if, notice if there, that's what? That's conditional. He says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You're not under self-works. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident, adultery. Fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who, what, practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit. Do you remember Jesus said, it's in, uh, in uh, Luke 6, 44. He says, a tree is known by its fruit. Because you can look at that fruit, and that tells you, should tell you, the condition of the fruit should tell you about the root, right? You'll know a tree. You'll make an evaluation. You don't have to be a, an expert in, is it horticulture? Is that the right terminology? You don't have to be an expert in all that. You can just observe and say, yep, that's a good tree, because the fruit, boy, that's sweet, wonderful Georgia peach, boy, that's a, good, that's a good peach tree. I love, you know, I love those things. I'll eat them all day long. But the fruit of the Spirit, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 20, Jesus said, by their fruits, you will know them. You see, a lot of people want to boast and talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then you find out They've got some skeletons 
in their closet, so to speak. Their life is being manifested to present one thing, but in reality, they're phony. Right now, I can think off the top of my head, two, maybe three, nationally known churches, big churches, big ministries that are right now in a moral free fall because the senior public leader that I could say two of their names, and I bet almost all of you would know who they are, are right now engulfed in a moral scandal that has been going on for years. And guess what? God is cashing in the chips of judgment and he's going to bring the house down. Now what's sad is God, as Paul would say in Galatians, is not mocked. You reap what you sow. God is more interested in character than you manifesting a gift of the Spirit. You see, it isn't, shouldn't be an either or. It should be both and. You see, the gift of the Spirit should be fueled by the fruit of the Spirit, which is the evidence of the working of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 22. But, notice how he contrasts fruit of the Spirit versus the works of the flesh. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love. Well, read Gary Chapman's five love languages and you'll manifest the fruit of love. No, you can read that book and still be nasty. Right? It's not an... You can't... You know, I say there's no factory producing Chiquita bananas in Idaho. Bananas have to be grown. Fruit has to be grown. Yeah, there's fake fruit. You ever gone to somebody's house and looked and you thought, man, that, that apple looks so good. And you touch it and it is as plastic as it fooled you. But real fruit, real fruit is sweet. You know, you know, you know the difference. Look at this. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Long-suffering or patient, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In other words, he says, against such there is no law. You can't, you can't manufacture. You might, you might fake it and think you're going to make it, but you're just faking it. And sooner or later, that fake fruit that you're selling, guess what? Somebody's going to grab that thing and hit that teeth and it's going to be plastic or it's going to be sour and nasty because it's not godly fruit that's being manifested from your life. It's works of the flesh that you're trying to pretend to be something that you're not. Maybe, again, you're living in disobedience or maybe you've never been regenerated and you've never been saved because the evidence of the work of God in a person's life is going to be the manifestation of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. He says, against such there is no law. And those, look at this, and those who are Christ, contrasting those who are not, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In verse 25, he says, if, if, there's another if, 
If we live in the Spirit, we need to walk in the Spirit. We need to live by the Spirit. So we're going to spend some time talking about, in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit, because I really am convinced that, we, and so many books, and, and, and I've got, whew, I got, I got a lot of books on the Holy Spirit, and so many of them I was going through this week, looking and seeing what they taught about, and so many of them don't even cover the fruit of the Spirit. A lot of things on the theology of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and all that has its place, but why do so much is not emphasized on the evidences of regeneration, which is the fruit of the Spirit? That's character. You can't, you, you can't get away from it. And notice how Paul in Galatians 5 there connects the fruit of the Spirit with being in Christ. If you are Christ. If. So somebody you say, well, I know they beat their wife. I know they cheat. I know they run around. I know they do this. But I know they're saved. No, you don't. Now again, judgment, final judgment is with the Lord. But there's no evidence in their life. There's a lot of people that don't man. They make a claim because they filled out a card. They went down to shot in the armed Baptist church when they were 14 years old. And they got baptized and they shook the preacher's hand. And they filled out a card and somebody told them, you're saved. Now don't ever question your salvation. And they said, okay, good. And they've gone off and lived like the devil ever since. No fruit, no fruit, no fruit, nothing, no evidence I've known people, you get talked to them about church and they immediately claim about going to some meeting and being slain in the spirit and there's no fruit of the spirit in their life. They go and point to some manifestation. Now again, I'm not knocking those things. I'm just saying there's a disconnect. There's got to be evidence, evidence of the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul connects that evidence to the degree that you and I yield to the work of the Spirit in our life by crucifying the flesh and walking and being obedient to Christ. There's, there's not a disconnect. It's all 